The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox. Happy Monday morning. You've got Karen Chow, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. President Emmanuel Macron loses his absolute majority in the French Parliament as the vote fragments between the left green opposition and a resurgent far right. Germany turning to coal to secure its energy supplies ahead of winter in a move that the economy minister Robert Harbeck describes as bitter but necessary as Russia continues to cut gas supplies. Asian equities struggle to find their footing after the S&P 500 posts its worst weekly performance since March 2020. And Bitcoin recovers ground after crashing below 20,000 in a sharp weekend sell-off, taking the world's biggest cryptocurrency to an 18-month low. top story around European politics and French President Emmanuel Macron's centrist bloc has lost its absolute majority in the country's parliament after the second round of the legislative elections. The ensemble alliance failed to reach the 289 seats required after a strong performance by the leftist alliance Nupit as well as Marine Le Pen's party national rally. Well, I did catch up with the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, late last week and asked him about the risk of this, given that uh, they still have a huge reform agenda ahead. And he was hopeful. He was somewhat confident that they would be able to secure the numbers. But clearly, I think on the back of what we saw in the first and second round of the French presidential election, that they just didn't have enough uh, in terms of a, a change that they were able to enact in that time frame. There was a lot of discord, a lot of dissent, and the cost of living crisis has not helped alleviate any of that pressure. I mean, what you saw on the back of the presidential elections was a, a reshuffle of cabinet, uh, some new faces that the public would have a chance to get to know and perhaps uh, redirect some of their anger out and get a different response. But it's just not changed anything. And I think as a result, you've got now this uh, torturous outcome on the back of the election. So let me get this right. The first five years of the presidency of Macron in the Elysee Palace were, let's be honest about it, blighted by COVID, blighted by the horrendous war in European soil. So they are mitigating factors in some ways for the inability of the Macron administration to deliver all its promises. That said, the second uh, administration, the next five years in the Elysee Palace, is going to be blighted not only by those two factors and the aftermath of those factors, but also the fact that um, he now hasn't got his majority in Parliament uh, and won't be able to enact his programme. So we're basically going to have a 10-year period where he has failed to enact his period. His policies potentially. Yeah, you're right. Ten years of gridlock is effectively what you're looking at because of various different uh, factors that have come up. And I think when you look at this particular phase, there was a push trying to change, say, the retirement age. And that was an issue, and that's where you saw some support for the, the far left, far right on some of these various different issues. And I know Charlotte's been tracking the, the uh, ins and outs of this election and just how many voters feel on the ground. So let's just get out to her now. Charlotte, 
It did feel as though we had that very strong protest vote in the first round of the presidential elections, but then the public was concerned about giving the keys to, uh, say, the far right. But in this particular outcome, as we now see the protest vote very visibly, just give us a sense of the parts that the public did not want changed now as they deliver gridlock through this impasse that we're seeing in Parliament. We felt like, as you say, for the presidential election, French voters were happy to have Emmanuel Macron instead of Marine Le Pen in charge, of, in particular, of the foreign policy of the country. But when it came to whether it's domestic and what is mainly a run in the National Assembly uh, that you see behind me, look, they didn't want to give all the powers to Emmanuel Macron. They wanted some opposition. They wanted some debate back in Parliament. And that's very much what's been achieved with the result that we saw last night with Emmanuel Macron losing his absolute majority to, uh, like you said, uh, this time around. And look, here, the headlines that you see in the French newspapers, you see ungovernable, a slap, an earthquake, because this is a scenario that we don't have in French politics, sort of a president not having a majority in, par in Parliament. You usually have all the president having a majority, all the opposition having a majority but this kind of fragmentation that we see in parliament now uh, with the result from last night we don't have that so there will have to be some sort of maybe coalition scenario and again that's something that politically tradition that traditionally we don't have in France I'm sure our German neighbors and other European countries say what's the big fuss about there's no absolute majority there's still a relative majority still a largest group in parliament they will have to look for allies to govern but in France that is not a tradition that we have so now we'll have to see where the, the government uh, goes towards to try to get an alliance. As you say, the far-left group will be the second biggest party in Parliament around Jean-Luc Mélenchon. You remember the third man in the presidential race. That was just eight weeks ago, the election for the president. And Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is not running as an MP, so he doesn't have now a seat in Parliament, but he very much led this left-wing bloc with the socialists, the communists and the Greens. And there was a historic argument on the left to get to be the main opposition. And that gamble paid off. There will be the main opposition in Parliament. Not enough. They wanted to have Jean-Luc Mélenchon named Prime Minister. They didn't reach that result, but it certainly had a very strong result. Another shock result from the night was a far right. Marine Le Pen had a great success last night. Uh, they have 89 MPs in Parliament. They had just about seven years in the last Parliament. So they will be a forced reckoning, the third group in Parliament this time around. And she said last night it was a great success for her. And it's interesting because just a few months ago, some people were ruling her out. You had Eric Zemmour, this other far-right candidate on the scene that was getting getting some momentum. Uh, and uh, some people thought that Marine Le Pen was kind of out. She'd lost too many elections. You know, they needed some renewal. And she proved like that, that she's very much a force to recognize. There will be the third parliament forces uh, there. So a uh, huge tectonic plates there, a very big change in French politics. We'll have to see where the French government tried to get some allies. It looks like the center-right, Les Républicains, who had a terrible result in the presidential a very bad result for them this time around as well, losing many seats. They actually could be very crucial for, uh, for Emmanuel Macron to try to get some MPs on board and potentially an alliance to go through to get this majority that he needs if he wants to get any laws passed. Well, All right. it's not great, let's face it. Uh, I don't think you can call it a rebuttal because we are ahead. We're not as ahead as we were planning to. And it's a bit of a hung parliament because no one's got the majority, at least the absolute majority that allows you to govern France. We have what we call a relative majority. We don't know yet exactly how many seats we're going to have. And that's going to be important. And we won't know for sure until tomorrow morning. And then 
there's three, four, five different groups that have anything between 20 and 80 members of parliament. So it's going to be a hard one to manage, but still we're ahead. So we can't say that uh, the President Macron has been rebuted, but uh, there's a bit of a warning there for sure, and it's going to be a hard one to pull. So what does that mean for his reform program and the, the program that he had for his reelection for his second mandate? Well, France doesn't have the habit of uh, negotiating coalitions or negotiating with, uh, you know, what, what we call hung parliament in, in the UK or in Germany and elsewhere or in the US, where they usually, they're very often is, you know, a parliament that's actually different from the one the president would, would, would call for his, uh, for his majority. So we're going to have to learn how to make the parliament work probably a bit better. We're going to have to negotiate on a case-by-case case on the reformed agenda, you know, whether it's pension, whether it's growth, whether it's uh, income, whether it's environment. We're going to have to find people who can support us. It's going to be very important to see, and we won't know that for sure until tomorrow, how much of a margin we need. If we need a few members of parliament to get the absolute majority, it's going to be obviously easier than if we need uh, 30, 40 or 50. And that still remains to be seen. So what does that mean? Towards which side of the assembly are you open to have talks with and potentially negotiations? We hear some politicians from Les Républicains, the centre-right party, already talking of potentially doing some sort of deal with uh, your parliamentary group to potentially give you a majority. Is that something that you'd be open to? Well, uh, honestly, at, at this stage, it's way too early to tell. There's different options. One that you alluded to, which would be to have a coalition kind of agreement with, with one of the minority groups. And in, in that respect, maybe the right wing Les Républicains would be the, the obvious choice. I'm not sure that's what they want. You know, it takes two to tango, so we're going to have to see what they want. And it, again, it's all going to depend on the, on the margin, margin, sorry, that we need to get the absolute uh, majority. There's also, you know, maybe people in, in the Green Party or maybe people on the left that may want to support us again on a case by case basis. So, uh, it's going to be, you know, not an easy ride, but that's for sure a ride that we can ride because we are ahead. So we're managing the process. But again, it's going to take uh, either other groups or member of parliament that are going to be wanting to play ball so that the ball proceeds. I'm optimistic, but I think there's a bit of a warning there by the French electorate that I think if there's one message is they want us to work together. They don't want an absolute majority for anyone, even though they gave us a relative majority. So I think the, the clear message by the electorate is go and work together to make France a better place. So let's do that. Is France able to be governed that way, as you say, like coalitions, like German style, like there's in many other European countries. It's not, as you said, the political tradition in France. Is that kind of compromise, a consensus kind of politics, a possibility in France? Well, I certainly hope we can. You know, because there's no reason why we shouldn't. You know, we like to think of the French exception, but our ability to build consensus, I think, is uh, what people want, what voters want, because that's the, send, the message they send us. So if we're not able collectively as a political class, able to listen and hear that, then we're in trouble. So it's going to take leadership by the president, by the government, but also by the leaders of different political parties, again, to play ball. I mean, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is not going to play ball. He's already had a very, you know, hard, angry, uh, vociferous speech 
which made it sound as if he had won, which, by the way, he didn't. He lost. And then Madame Le Pen was also a bit on that front of, uh, of being very vindicative. But there's, there's a lot of uh, members of parliament in between that hopefully we can, we can work with, that believe the institutions can work, that believe France should be reformed and not should be in a you know, complete freeze for, for one year, two years, three years. So let's hope we do that. But it's going to take leadership for sure and a bit of maneuvering. Savos Roland Lescure, an MP from the group Ensemble, so that the group that supports Emmanuel Macron, speaking to me last night. He was re-elected, he was elected in the last assembly and was re-elected last night. He represents a French citizen living in North America and looks saying they will need to find a compromise. And that's an echo to what Bruno Le Maire, the economy minister, was saying last night as well, saying that we need some imagination to govern. So we'll have to wait and see where they try to find some allies. What we know at the moment, there will be a reshuffle because three ministers out of the 15 that were running in this election had been voted out, which means they will not be able to stay in government. So new ministers will come in place. But what we know for sure is that there will be three big blocks in Parliament, three with very different visions uh, for society and for the world and with a great challenges ahead for the French economy, the cost of living uh, and the potential economic downturn coming ahead with the war in Ukraine in the background. Uh, there will be tough challenges to tackle and with potentially great instability in the National Assembly. All right, Charlotte, we'll come back to you later. Thank you very much indeed for that report. Uh, Qantas and Airbus are going to invest up to $200 million to accelerate the establishment of the sustainable aviation fuel industry in Australia. The five-year agreement was linked on the sidelines of the IATA annual general meeting in Doha. And Dan, you join us live from that event with a special guest. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you, Steve. Well, let's get straight into that special guest. I'm very pleased to say that the Qantas CEO, Alan Joyce, joins me live now in Doha. Alan, warm welcome. Great to have you on CNBC. Great to talk to you, Dan. Yeah. So let's talk about where we're at in this recovery. Obviously, we're seeing Australia opening back up. Thankfully, access to the global markets are improving. So where do we stand right now? Yeah, it's really good. In Australia, in the domestic market, we're seeing massive growth in demand. Uh, with demand for leisure over 120%, the corporate market and the SME markets back to 90% of pre-COVID levels. Uh, so we have nearly full capacity, or more than full capacity restored in the domestic market. Internationally, a little bit slower, we're at 50% of pre-COVID levels. By Christmas, we'll get to 85%. March next year, we'll get to 100%. But demand is massive. We're having more demand internationally than, in some cases, we've seen before COVID with less capacity, which is allowing us to recover fuel costs, get yields up, and, and actually to be able to digest that. And before we talk about where we're going, let's just quickly talk about how we got here, because the criticism and the charge in Australia is that Qantas has had its, not my words, but had its snout in the taxpayer trough when it comes to receiving billions of dollars in aid and support and perhaps even a bailout, if you wanted to call it that, and yet the ROI for the taxpayer simply isn't there. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, so Qantas had um, reported that there was $2 billion in funding that came from the Australian government. But actually, when you break down that $2 billion, we got very little funding from the government directly. $1 billion of that was to rent our aircraft as freighters to keep the agricultural sector and the fishery sector alive. So we were exporting goods all around the world when there were no other aircraft flying. So that was a service that the government paid us for. We didn't make very much money out of that. 
The second component of it uh, was JobKeeper, which was a payment subsidy to our people. We stood down 22,000 people. Uh, they wouldn't have had any income coming through, and the government across the economy put a JobKeeper in place so that they could get through this. And that was essential to them. But Qantas, again, uh, that was not money to Qantas, that was money that Qantas passed off to its employees. And the government didn't take an equity stake in the airline at the depths of the crisis, nor did it really set conditions about how any of those schemes or any of the money you received should be spent. So. Yeah, is that a bailout by another name? Which it's not a bailout again. So, you know, the government advertised on media all the way through it. Does that mean CNBC, if you had a government ad, have gotten a government subsidy and somehow the government should take equity in you? That's the exact same thing they did with us with a billion dollars for service. There wasn't any money given to Qantas uh, to get Qantas through this. That wasn't for some activity, either looking after our people or, or renting aircraft for us. I think every company in Australia that uses governments for activity could be classified as having a government bailout and could be in the same category as wanting government equity or conditions on it. No co company would deal with the government if they had to put conditions on it just to get government business. That's essentially what Qantas got. I spoke with Willie Walsh yesterday, the IATA Director General. He told me that we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to the aviation market recovery because, of course, we're still seeing some issues at airports around the world. There's a sea of luggage, for example, at Manchester, labour shortages. There's also manpower and supply chain issues as well. Where do we stand when it comes to addressing some of those issues and how long could it potentially take? Well, I think the entire industry everywhere is experiencing this. Um, and we're seeing some of it in Australia, not as bad as we're seeing in Europe or in the North American market. We saw it at Easter, long queues at airports, nothing like you're seeing in London, Manchester and Dublin and other places around Europe. And I think it does take a while. The system is rusty. You know, everything was, was closed down for two years. It's just going to take a while to get that system humming again. And it's a huge, complicated business. There's a lot of moving parts involved in it. And I could show that with what happened with our call centres. Our call centres were inundated, as an example, with calls three times pre-COVID volumes. We had wait times of, on average, two hours. Sometimes people were waiting up to eight hours. Now, we put staff into it, we trained new people, we recruited, and you know we're advertised for 2,500 people. We had 25,000 applicants for them. And the call centre last week had an average wait time of less than five minutes, uh, with nobody waiting more than 20 minutes. That was better than pre-COVID, because we focused on and got right. The same thing we're doing with the operation at the moment. We're looking at where we have COVID sickness, having extra reserves. We're looking at where people have left the industry, recruiting more people in and training them. And we think that'll take us a few weeks to try and get back to where we were. Some other areas, I think it will take longer around the globe, it seems, because the problems are bigger than what we've been experiencing in Australia. Let's talk about one of the other major headwinds that the sector is facing right now. We have oil tracking around 120 US dollars a barrel. I think the average price of jet fuel is about 140 right now, equivalent US a barrel. So significant cost input pressure there. How is that impacting Qantas? And to another point, how is this new deal with Airbus perhaps going to alleviate some of the pressures you're feeling there? Yeah, so the deal with Airbus, I think, is a deal for the future. We've, um, we're putting together a fund of 200 million US dollars, nearly a quarter of a billion Australian dollars to actually develop a sustainable aviation fuel industry in Australia. We've made the commitment of half 10% 
of our fuel being sapped by 2030 that has 80% less emissions than traditional jet kerosene. It could create um, a sustainable aviation industry in Australia, could create more than 15,000 jobs. So it's great for the country, it's great for sustainability and it's great for energy security. So it's, and this is a landmark deal with Airbus and an airline to do something as dramatic as this. In terms of fuel itself today, which is an immediate concern, um, what we're having to do is get airfares up to cover that cost. Our fuel bill next year will be $1.8 billion more than it was, um, uh, more than it was in 19. And we are seeing airfares responding to it internationally. There's not as much capacity as there is demand. So we're getting yields up and we're completely covering uh, the increase in fuel internationally. And domestically, we're taking capacity down um, in the months of July, August, in order to get airfares up uh, to cover fuel costs. And that look, it's looking like it's sustainable. So we're comfortable that we can cover this cost, at least in the short term and at least at current levels. And right-sizing capacity, perhaps adjusting fares as a result as well. Alan, just finally, your outlook for the second half of the year. As we continue to see this recovery progress, do you see any major headwinds or risks on the horizon beyond what we've discussed, including the outlook for fuel? Well, I, I think, you know, the aviation industry, my predecessor said, was constant shock syndrome subject to it. So you, you never say never. Uh, but, you know, the airline industry has shown how robust it is. It's gone through the worst prices it's had in its 100-year history, in our case, 100 years of operating. And it's coming out of it, I think, stronger. Uh, we're going to get the airline industry back into profits. We're handling fuel a lot better than people would have imagined a few years ago. Um, and the aviation industry has shown itself as being an important part of the world economy and it's a critical part of people's lives. And I've no doubt uh, we will sort out these operational issues in the short term and we get the industry back on a solid footing as it was back in 19. We can only hope so. Thanks, Dan. Alan Joyce, appreciate your time. Thanks Thank for joining us. That is Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas. And with that, guys, we're live in Doha, Qatar. We'll hand it back over to you. More news and, of course, interviews coming your way as well. Yeah, very good work, Dan. I really enjoyed that interview. Thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, well, this is quite an extraordinary situation Germany has uh, put itself in or found itself in. There's a question. Uh, but bitter but essential. The German government warns it will have to take tough measures on gas, uh, unfortunately, that might involve coal as well. We'll have more after the break. And for more on the outcome of the French parliamentary election and what it means for President Macron's agenda, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Ladies and gentlemen, take a look at the top right-hand corner. Can we do that again, Adam? 
I don't know if you can do it technically today. Um, 22, <laughs> he's having a few problems, but bless him, he's kept us on air. So a shout out to our director. 23% uh, higher, and the others, I guess. Uh, yeah, apparently it's not just him. 23% uh, higher over the last three months wholesale gas. Just another wacky three months in the world of energy. Uh, this, as the US president, Mr. Biden, says Russia's war in Ukraine has, a quote, sharpened the need to achieve long-term reliable energy security and stability. Absolutely. Uh, hosting world leaders at the major economies forum on climate and energy, he warned the world faces a global energy crisis. Uh, Mr. Biden also said gas prices and the pressure would actually increase. Russia's war is driving up prices of gas. Everybody knows that. Hurting people in all our countries. It's an immediate problem that I suspect all of you and I know I'm working every day. Over the long run, we can remove the pain of volatile gas prices and reduce transportation emissions by putting more zero emission cars on the road. In the United States, we're building a nationwide network of 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. We're strengthening our supply chains for the critical materials that go into those batteries. And we've set a goal of ensuring that half of all passenger cars sold in the United States in 2020 will be zero, 2030, I should say, will be zero emission. I urge all of you to join us in a similar goal. Uh, meanwhile, the Italian energy group Eni is facing a sixth day of gas supply shortfalls from Russia. The group, which only received half of its order from Gazprom on Friday, said similar cutbacks have continued over the weekend. Russia has insisted supply shortages are not premeditated, blaming maintenance issues. Germany has taken emergency action to brace itself for a gas supply shock from Russia. The economy minister, Robert Harbeck, outlined the new measures, uh, which include increased reliance on coal-fired power plants as a way to cut down on gas emissions. Annette uh, joins us now to discuss. Annette, I'm sorry to say it, but this is another uh, throwback to a previous administration, the, the failure of the Merkel uh, years to actually uh, give Germany diversified energy supplies, surely. Yes, exactly. I think you, it's fair to sum it up that the past uh, energy policy has just uh, made us very much reliant on Russian gas. Just um, to give you a number, 55% of Russian uh, of gas supply um, previously came from Russia. And of course, you can't substitute that um, from one day to the other with, for example, liquefied gas. Also, it's not possible just to substitute some sort of gas with another because, for example, the industry especially needs that quality of Russian gas. So what happens now is that we're seeing a sharp reduction in gas supply from Russia. It's down 60%. Russia is saying it's because of the missing part uh, for one of their of the pipelines coming from Siemens. Also, interesting side story here. Um, but I think political Berlin thinks that it's a strategy and it could well be given that we are talking about that short or yeah, cut in gas supply at the same time when Brussels is discussing to uh, bring the Ukraine into the European Union. So essentially what happens now is I have, um, all plans because clearly the gas Right, well either um, Annette has become a robot or we've had a few technical issues. I think it's the latter. So Annette, if you can hear us, apologies for cutting you short. Um, we'll come back to you later on as well, because I think what you have to say is absolutely very, very important about this key issue. Well, Karen, actually, there were some enormous, enormous moves on energy last week. I and mean, it was mostly towards the tail end of the week where the energy sector on Friday 
fell 5.6%, falling a total of 17% for the week. So that was a, the biggest sector move by a long, long way. Uh, but today's action is going to be very limited because we have the Juneteenth holiday. Indeed we do. It is quite a scene setter, isn't it? We had a very volatile week for risk assets right across the board from commodities, oil to, of course, technology. And it does tell you about the ramifications of the tech sector for the broader markets. As you take a look at these boards, it was the fact that we're back in the green on big uh, name fang stocks, uh, some of the high momentum plays, the ARK Innovation Fund that we're back in the green, uh, particularly on the NASDAQ, 1.4% to the upside but it was still a rough trading week if you consider the pattern that we saw over the course of the week i mean arc innovation fund down more than three percent fang stocks down 5.6 percent for the trading week despite the fact we did have a bounce of 2.5 percent in those fang names in the friday trade but uh, that was enough to drag the s p positive you could see just but uh, not for the dow we saw falls there 0.1 of a percent what we saw in terms of mood sentiment, uh, it was rough over the week. It felt rough. It very much was by numbers as well. And investors, again, taking stock of the impact of central bank actions to try and tackle inflation. It's just worth noting that uh, how far we've come off now from some of the highs over the course of the week on that S&P index. We were down 5.8%, but 23-plus percent down from the record highs we saw earlier on. So we have very much retreated into bear market territory on these major indices. And let's take you to Asia. We don't have that trade stateside, so it might be a little bit weaker in terms of liquidity across the region today. And you can see flatlining for the Hong Kong market, not straying too far for the Chinese stock market, but where you are getting the bigger moves for the Cosby in South Korea and for the Japanese stock market where we've got a trade low of 300 plus points or 1.1%. So it is risk off across some of these Asian markets. And let's take you to WTI and Brent. Steve just mentioned those numbers before that we saw over the course of the week, the 9.2% off the WTI price and a little bit less of Brent, but still high single digits off the commodity trade. As investors again have concerns that we could be facing a recessionary outcome as central banks try and tackle headline inflation. So as you take a look at uh, Lightspeed Crude today, uh, the July price contract, we are slightly higher, 109.60 is where we're trading. And the Bitcoin trade for the crypto world, it's been uh, not the prettiest of weekends. We've uh, certainly seen a lot of excitement, but to the downside this time, we've recovered a little bit of territory after moving through that 18,000 point. We're just shy, you can see, of 20,000 at this stage. Arjun joins us with more on the volatile crypto trading. Arjun, I must say, having been at a tech event, there's still a lot of enthusiasm for cryptocurrencies here. I think people see it as a game changer, potentially to their wealth if they're trapped in uh, a world where they're not getting paid a lot. The upside at this stage, career-wise, is still somewhat limited. They're looking at crypto as some sort of a dream, which sounds a little bit dangerous to me still at this point. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is a lot of enthusiasm for projects. Uh, if you speak to those in the crypto industry, you know, they talk about this being a long term play. But right now, there's just a, a lot of issues in the market. Uh, the market very much on edge, not being able to hold above that 20,000 handle. Uh, and what you have seen as a result of a lot of this selling is a number of issues come to the fore right now. And I'll just run through a few of those. Firstly, you've got issues with mining, in particular with Bitcoin. You know, this is a very expensive uh, task. This 
is something that requires high-powered computers, a lot of energy prices. You've got energy prices on the rise. You've got the Bitcoin price falling, and many of these miners are now unprofitable. They're dumping Bitcoin onto the market, and that's putting pressure on prices as well. And if there is any kind of rally as well, you're likely to see some of these miners selling into those rallies, which could cap any kind of uh, price rise as well at this point as well. And what you are seeing is a lot of project failures happening, and there are certainly more to come as well, according to the people I've been speaking to in the industry. They are expecting many of these cryptocurrencies to end up collapsing over time. Uh, and of course, we have seen a number of high-profile uh, issues come to the fore as well. The Terra USD uh, stablecoin collapse. We have issues with Celsius, one of the crypto lenders that is facing a lot of insolvency issues right now as well. And I think insolvency is going to be a big topic as well over the coming weeks for a lot of these companies that are in the lending space where they're just not able to uh, uh, effectively allow their depositors to withdraw that money. There will be liquidity issues and more of that coming to force. So plenty uh, that is weighing on the market right now. Very hard to see at this point how sort of Bitcoin gets back to wherever it was uh, at those highs from last November and some of the other coins as well at this point, guys. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.